Friends is a great topic that not a lot of people like to talk about. We see movies like Toy Story or we hear songs like What a Friend We Have in Jesus, but what does that really mean for our own life? And not just acquaintances, what does it mean to find real, faithful, committed friends? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, May 5th, 2013. End of the Son, end of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we're continuing a sermon series called I Need More, and this is actually our third week in the series. We talked about security. I could use some more security specifically, um, some physical security, but also everything that goes around with security. And then last week we talked about time, which is kind of a buzzword of things. If you say, I need more time, I think people can relate to that. So if, if you go to a friend of yours and you said, hey, I'm going to this sermon series that's entitled, um, I Need More Time, I think most people could relate to that, wouldn't you think? There's nobody who's like, no, I'm actually good for time. You know, I don't, I don't need something like that. Can you imagine going to your friend and saying, I'm thinking about going to this sermon series called I Need More Faithful Friends. Derek. You know, I mean, could you imagine? It's kind of an awkward thing. So I don't picture this one being like the ultimate inviter kind of message that you're, you're going to be talking to people saying, hey, I'm going to this thing really excited about it. I need more friends. I'm hoping to figure that out. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't picture that happening. But what we're talking about specifically is not... Um, like just acquaintances. I think we're masters of acquaintances, especially in this culture. I mean, that's just my own observation, but studies actually say the same thing. We're masters of acquaintances. You have Facebook and all these people that you had barely any connection to, even like in high school, are like, hey, do you want to be my friend? And you're like, sure, I'll I'll be your friend. And soon you've got like 200, 300, and there's people with like a thousand friends or something like that. Even Facebook, they'll realize that we got a problem and they, because you get all your advice from Facebook, but it, the Facebook realizes there's a problem, and they have, like, your close friends now, and then, like, this broad net of friends, and maybe it should say friends in quotes or something like that. Really, it's acquaintances, and especially where we live, I think acquaintances come pretty easy, wouldn't you say? I, I think of all the places I've ever lived, I would guess um, way faster than Washington and way faster where I grew up is making friends here. It's just easy um, because so many people are moving in, moving out. They make assessments pretty quick and say, you seem somewhat normal. Uh, We should hang out a little bit. So you have this acquaintance really quick. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, What we're talking about is um, deep, committed relationships when we say, I need more faithful friends. So all of you, I'm sure, have all kinds of friends or acquaintances. The question is, do you have um, deep, committed relationships with someone uh, like an actual friend? a real friend. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And the example that we're going to be looking at is David. Um, You probably know some things about David, so just take a second to think about what do you know about King David in the Bible. First thing that popped in your head probably is David and Goliath, I'm guessing. Uh, David and Goliath. Um, You know a few other things. In fact, the, the narrative about David's life is the longest not only in scripture about an individual person, it's the longest in ancient literature. So we have like the Iliad and the Odyssey and things like that. The narrative about David is the longest one in ancient, scripture, in ancient literature, and it's about a single guy. And the benefit of going and to be able to follow someone's whole life instead of just like a highlight of his life is you can see what is it that makes someone's life and what is it that actually like breaks someone's life. And if you'd step back and look at David, I think one of the things that makes his life is his friendship with a guy named Jonathan. So we're going to be looking at that. Um, why is it that friendship's so important? Why is it like friendship such a big deal? Um, where we're looking is, if you know the life of David, it's mostly covered in the book of 1 Samuel. It's covered um, the first part of his life. In the book of 1 Samuel, we have like these bookends. 
And David grew up, he's a shepherd, he's the youngest of eight sons. In fact, so insignificant was he that when his, uh, his father heard that they were going to crown a king from his sons, this would be a big moment, he didn't even call his youngest son in. He's still watching the sheep, and the other guys are kind of get all getting ready. It sounds like a Disney movie, actually, doesn't it? Like they'd all be getting ready, and then this guy's kind of working Cinderella-style with the sheep. So his father doesn't even call him in, eventually calls him in, and he's anointed to say, you are the next king. And the situation was this. Saul, who was very tall, he was taller than everyone. This is the first king that people ever had, except he's kind of a dud. And God said, um, instead of letting you rule forever, which was essentially the promise, because of your decisions, I'm going to take this from you. And so your oldest son is not going to be king. And you know Saul's oldest son's name? Jonathan. So this interesting twist that happens is Saul's oldest son, who is meant to be king, and David, who is going to actually take his actual position, become the best of friends. And the situation gets, um, uh, it it keeps going in these uh, three chapters, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20. And what this section is, is... From the time between David found out that he was going to be king until the time he actually became king. There's this three-chapter area, and it's multiple years that are happening here. It's the darkest, loneliest, hardest time of David's life. You know about Goliath and things like that. And in fact, it's Goliath that kicks this off. So what cements his relationship with uh, Jonathan, what cements his relationship with um, Saul kind of forever is this killing of Goliath. So you know the situation. Um, Goliath, uh, Saul at this time is kind of distressed. Um, he's frustrated, and he says, uh, someone suggests, hey, what if someone played music for you? Would you feel better? And he's like, sounds like a plan. So they actually look around the kingdom, and someone says, I've got someone for you, this guy named David. So David is the one um, early on that starts playing the lyre and things like this, and it calmed him down. But he was a commuter at that point. So he'd go work for his dad, and then he would come on occasion and play for the king. So he's doing this commuting situation, and then their arch-rival, the Philistines, some people believe the Phoenicians, their arch-rival, the Philistines, of course, have Goliath, who's like nine foot something, and he's talking trash, like something fierce. And David says, this is, you cannot mock God. And then you know the situation. He takes the stones, and he sinks one into his head. Goliath dies. Well, how did the people feel about David at that point? They did. They, they, they sang songs. They said David has killed his, uh, Saul's killed his thousands, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, I think, which is way more than I've ever killed in battle. But, and then it says David's killed his 10,000. So essentially, like, David is 10 times better than you, Saul. How do you think Saul took that? Not very well. And it's at this moment, after this death, that Jonathan and David actually become close friends. And we're going to look at one of the covenant uh, promises they make to each other right after he killed Goliath. And it says they're one in spirit. It says they loved each other like uh, themselves. And this close relationship between David and um, Jonathan. However, Saul becomes murderously envious. And, and this next three-chapter period tries to kill David. Do you know how many times? Six. Six. So, like, kind of covertly at first. David's playing the harp, and he just, like, throws a spear at him. That happens twice. Uh, so that happens. So he does three times covertly, but then it becomes, like, overt. He makes it well known to everybody that if you associate with this guy, consider yourself an enemy of the king because I want this guy dead. And during, in the midst of this chapters, it's uh, like the writer set it up. Samuel set it up just beautifully. This relationship with Jonathan starts it. In the middle, there's a high point where Jonathan is defending David's honor. And then at the end, the bookend, 
is this, uh, it seems like the last time they're ever going to see each other. And these grown men are weeping and kissing each other, saying um, goodbye, essentially. This, this is going to be done. And Jonathan dies, it seems, before David ever sees him again. So we have this relationship. Literally, in the Bible, holding in this worst, darkest days of David's life is this friendship with Jonathan. Holding it together during this time, the darkest days. Saul tries to kill him six times. Um, David has to flee. He has to actually live in the enemy territory. He has to pretend he's insane. Um, he does all these things, just getting pushed away and away. And David isn't, uh, he's still trying to keep things kind of smoothed over. So it's weird. It's not like he just ran away and is gone. He's gone for a while, and then he comes back. Things seem to be smoothed over. Have you ever had a relationship with someone that's one of these roller coaster things? And you're like, okay, okay. It's like an abusive relationship textbook is right here. Okay, everything's okay. I'm sorry, David. You hang out in my courtship, and then boom, it blows up again, and he's got to take off. And it just goes like this, up and down and up and down. And up. During this hardest time, though, Jonathan is the one who's there. Why do we need friends? You probably have not had your life uh, to be, uh, someone hasn't attempted to take your life six times. That's my guess. But if you live in the meadows, it's probably like three, right? I mean, we, it's pretty dangerous where we live. But I'm guessing you have had difficulties, haven't you? You've had trouble. You've had disappointment. You've had job losses. You've had relationship problems. You've had sicknesses. Without friends, your life is going to sink. It's absolutely essential. Without friends, your life is just going to go down and down and down and down. And you think, why is that? Why can't we be like spiders? I mean, how often do you see like spiders hanging out and throwing a party? Right? You don't. You don't see that. How often do you see like hermit crabs throwing a party? That would be ironic. Then they'd be mingling crabs. That's what Dimitri Martin says. But no, they, they, they just stick to themselves in their shell. Why can't we be like them? Why can't we just go somewhere and be by ourselves and be all alone? Well, if you go back to Genesis, remember when God creates the world? And you have all these positive statements. So God says, um, and then let there be light. And then at the end of each day, he says, and it was good. It was very good. Every day except Monday, ironically. So Sunday is good. And then Monday, he doesn't say anything, which I think there's something to that. And then Tuesday through the rest of the days, he says, it's very good, right? Everything's great. Fantastic. You know the first negative statement we have in Scripture? The first time God says it's not good. It says, it is not good. The Trinity gets together and they say, it is not good for man to be alone. And where is Adam at this point? Paradise. So just think of like your favorite place to go in the whole world. You're going to my house, I know. that You can't all fit, but you're going to your favorite place in the whole world, right? It's paradise and it's fantastic. You're like, I would not mind being there right now. This would be really cool. Adam is in paradise. The weather is perfect. Um, everything's fantastic. But God recognizes immediately it is not good for a human being to be alone. We're not wired to function alone. And I get going up to the mountains. How many of you like to go to the mountains? Or how many of you like to go fishing or work on a project in your garage or something like this or go read? I get that. But why is that so beautiful? Because it's not forever. It's because you have the option to be with other people because you have a friendship with someone else that says, I love you and um, I enjoy my time with you. You go do your thing and you can actually enjoy that time. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, I feel so needy. I was embarrassed to even mention to someone, I actually want to know how can I find more faithful friends. Uh, Don't be. This is how you're wired. 
Don't think like I'm this dorky kid or I'm this dorky adult that feels like um, codependent and all this stuff because I want to reach out and I want some more relationships in my life. You could look at study after study. With more close friends, uh, you live longer. With more close friends, you're healthier. But at the heart of it, this is how you're wired. This is my comfort to you. So do not feel bad as we look at this. This is how you're made. And you're made to have close relationships and open relationships that are close. My warning to you is, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, society's view of friendship, I think, has changed quite a bit. Just in the, They say over the last 50 years. And there's challenges that go with that. And in order to kind of make it up the ladder, in order to be successful, in America we kind of trample relationships. Relationships are secondary, and in our success and our achievement is first. And this is especially an American thing. So if you're talking about how do I succeed at work or how do I succeed in my life, most likely relationships have gotten pushed down and pushed down and pushed down so that you can achieve. But let me ask you this. Say you do achieve, and the world appreciates your power, the world appreciates success, the world appreciates achievement, the world appreciates nice houses and a beautiful kitchen. But say you have the most beautiful kitchen in the world, is that paradise? You have the coolest, biggest, most wonderful house in the world, is that actual paradise? Adam was in actual paradise without sin and was alone. And it doesn't matter how much you achieve, my warning to you is do not step on these relationships so that I can get to this point and then suddenly recognize I'm in what I thought was paradise and I'm still alone. So what are we talking about? How, uh, how do you recognize a decent friendship? Uh, I see three things, and I think I'm going to uh, pop them up if it's according. A uh, good relationship is constant or consistent. A good relationship is transparent. And a good friendship is also sympathetic. I have to explain the last one. I think you think you know what I'm talking about. And I think I know what I'm talking about, but it's a little bit different. Uh, what do I mean by constant? This is the verse that we just looked at. So Jonathan made this covenant right after David had killed Goliath. It says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So he takes off his robe he was wearing. Remember, he is the second um, in line to be king. He takes off the robe he's wearing. He gave it to David, along with his tunic, his sword, and his bow, and his belt. What words looks strange when you're talking about making friends. There's actually a lot of them, but who makes a covenant with their friends? Besides the sisterhood of like the traveling pants or, I mean, maybe when you're a kid, you're like blood brothers or something. Is that how that works? You cut hands and you're like, yes. But now with disease, you'd have to like wash each hands with Perel and then make like cuts that they don't line up and things like this. But essentially, he, he made this a covenant agreement that said, we are going to be friends. We're in the, and you're like, well, what, does that make sense? We, most of the time when we talk about covenant relationships, uh, maybe I'll back up and say, that I think the easiest way to explain this is to compare it to what relationships we're most uh, used to. So when you go to the store, that's like a vendor-consumer relationship. I, pretend I'm the vendor. I'll be the bad guy. Um, pretend I'm the vendor. You're the consumer, right? And I'm offering you certain goods or something like that, like a gray suit. If you like it, you can buy it, Correct. What happens if you don't like the price I'm giving you for this gray suit? You can go somewhere else, right? If you don't like my service, you can go somewhere else. If you don't like my price, you can go somewhere else. That, it, essentially, as long as your needs are met by me, the vendor, we've got a good relationship, right? This is good. And maybe you've gone to the same uh, barber or something like that for 30 years or something like that. I'm assuming that they still give a decent haircut, 
right? It's not like Harry Coonan in Appleton where it started to get worse and worse and worse and you're like, relationship, vendor, you know, you're on this. If someone is meeting your needs, you're in good shape because you can always go somewhere else. When we start talking about covenant relationships, it's different. And they say in the last 50 years, and I'll explain that, our, what used to be covenant relationships, and, and what I mean by covenant relationships is we're in a relationship, we're family, and you see this in other cultures to some degree. We are family, and it does not matter what my primary needs are. What I'm most concerned about is your needs. You can see this in good marriages. The person is not saying, what, is, what do I get out of this deal? That's a covenant relationship. You make this promise, for better or for worse. It's not like, as long as my needs are met, then we're in good shape. Instead, what we're talking about is we make an agreement that we are married for better or for worse, and I'm going to be looking out for your needs ahead of my own needs. Does this make some sense? What has happened, they say, in the last 50 years, um, we've always had business relationships on the planet, always. And they've never been about relationships. In fact, you can't even do that. We're looking to buy that parsonage. Did you know that? Um, so the church is thinking, hey, we should sell the house perhaps if we would like to buy it. We do like to buy it. I inquired with the mortgage person. And they said, uh, I don't think so. And this is through Quicken Loans. I'm just trying to get a pre-approval. They said, well, it's not an arm's length transaction. I'm like, What? And what they're concerned about, apparently, is two things. One is, by coercion, I could be buying a house that I don't want because I'm employed by the people who own it. So in other words, they're like, we're done. You buy this at whatever price, you know, and I'm kind of stuck and I don't know what to do. You could see that happening in the business world. Or on the other end, like a father could sell to his son for like six bucks and said, I'm going to sell you this house for like six dollars. And then what really should happen is the son should pay taxes on, apparently, this gift of the value of the house between $6 and the value of the house. Does this make sense? I don't know how I'm in the middle of this. It's just frustrating. How about that? But what they're trying to say is business relationships, um, two separate parties with no coercion can come together and say, we're going to come to a fair price because at any point both of us can walk. That's how we're used to things. And what they're saying is... um, most of the world functions in a covenant relationship. I think of you, the relationship is key. Now this model of vendor and um, user is sliding into how we function in our normal society. And so how we function with our friends now is being modeled not under covenants and things like this, but it's now being modeled in what do I get out of this relationship? So you can probably step back and think of the last 50 years, um, marriages and things like that. How many of you witnessed, or, or couples and relationships, how many of you witnessed where they're saying, okay, as long as my needs are met, this is the best thing ever. But as soon as my needs are not being met or fulfilled how I want, then I'm done. How many friendships have you seen where people are close and things are going great, but something happens and they're like, you know what, this is too much trouble, I'm gone. This is happening more and more and more. Here's the problem, though. Users are not friends. You're saying, I want a friend. If a person is a user, they're not a friend. And and I'll give you a distinction. Um, Users categorize when you first meet someone. So we get to meet people all the time, right? You you go to the store, you go play softball, you do whatever. Users categorize people immediately, and they say, okay. They size the person up and determine, what can I get out of this relationship? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about, um, and not, not it's bad to, um, what do they call it, network and things like this, but essentially they're saying, okay, here's what I need, let's size this up, what face do I have to show to get what I need out of this relationship? Okay, that's what a user does, they size things up. What a friend does is 
they try and find out what's unique about you. They don't try and stereotype you. They just look at you and say, what is unique about this person? What happens if you have problems? A friend says, you know what, I want to help you. If you've got flaws and you want to work on them, I want to help you do that. I want to help you work through these. So in the end, users are not friends. If you're looking for faithful friends, they're not going to be in this consumer relationship. They said, we're in this no matter what. Second thing, not just constant. I hope they had a word there. Oh, things that, okay. Um, what are, transparent is the second thing. And what do we mean? It, David and Jonathan get together and it says they're one in spirit. Essentially, they're transparent. And what do we talk about transparent? I didn't even put it up here because I knew there'd be a weird reaction. Um, at the end of chapter 20, these guys who had not seen each other, and maybe you know the story, David, um, Saul is looking for David. He's like, where's David? And he's not there because David thinks he's going to try and kill him again. Um, after, you know, like five times, you're kind of onto it a little bit. And then, uh, Jonathan sees David and he says, tell you what, you hide in this rock, I'll come back tomorrow, and I'm going to shoot these arrows, pretend like I'm like doing aiming practice. Aiming practice? What's it called? Shooting practice, I guess? That shows how many weapons I have. Um, what would I do with rubber band? I would aim, practice, practice my aim. There we go. Um, so he says, tell you what, if I shoot it and I tell the servant, like, go to the left or go to the side, then you know things are cool. If I say, no, 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 the arrows are way beyond you, then you're in trouble. Well, he shoots these three arrows, and, the, and David is waiting, and he hears him say to the servant, the arrows are beyond you. So he gets his stuff and says, you know what, you've got to go back. And this seems to be the last time they're going to see each other. So these grown men are weeping. It says weeping. These grown men are kissing each other because they're so sad, and it says David wept the most. And you're like, that is so weird. Is that weird? It's kind of weird in our society, but... That probably means if it, it's totally weird to you, you probably haven't read the Bible enough. If you look in Acts chapter 20, um, uh, Paul spends, I think, three years in Ephesus, and he's getting ready to leave. And they're like, uh, Acts chapter 20, they start to weep. These grown men are kissing and saying they can't believe that they're actually what? They're being transparent. You see guys who are sad when things leave. They're just like, but inside, there's a different story. We left Washington. I, there's a guy I played hoops with and softball and things like that. And I thought, you know, we're pretty good friends. Um, we just do these kind of various sports. When I announced that I was leaving, he was in church that day, and he was crying. This is a grown, like, a husky guy, just crying. That's how it always is, isn't it? You've got to be husky to be able to cry. The skinny guys like us, we've got to keep it in. But he's crying and he's weeping. What is he doing? He's being transparent. He's saying, I am going to miss you, and I'm going to miss this relationship. So not only do you share deepest feelings like that. Uh, but you also share your common life when we talk about being a good friend. Now, what do I mean by that? Ladies are like, this is the best part. That means you hang out with your friend in sweatpants. They're like, this is the ultimate, right? You don't have to put makeup on. You don't have to make sure the house is... That's really not what I'm getting at. Best friends just share the common things. If you've got friends that you always have to do something cool with, they're probably not that good of friends. If you've got friends like you can just sit on the couch and drink a pop, and just talk, or you can go on a walk. Now we're talking about better friends. And in fact, if you always have to do something spectacular, you see this in the dating world, they wonder, like, why, did, why don't these relationships work on The Bachelor? Or like, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, that's how our, thankfully, we survived our helicopter rides and balloon rides and trips to Paris. Through hard effort, we survived. Uh, maybe it's because our relationship was so mundane. One time my brother came home and he's like, will you guys go on a date? And he gave me money. <laughs> it was for a long-term Ford relationship, honey. 
But if it's always spectacular, you're probably not that tight of friends. It, it, when you're talking about good friends, it's someone who can just come over and just sit and hang out and, and share. And it, you almost have to share your common life. And what do you do during those times? Uh, not only do you share deep feelings, you share common life. Here's a test. Do the friends that you have invite you in on the decisions that they have to make? This is a big test because a user does not want your opinion. They've already made their opinion. They just want to use you for whatever you need. If you've got friends and they've got a big decision in your life, do they bring you in on it to say, hey, I need your help on this? If you've got real friends, you'd say, hey, I, I need your advice on this. Can you help me out while we think about this? That's a real test to see if you've got friends. The last thing is flaws. A user has a veneer. A user is always spin-doctoring things so that you always get the side they want you to see, right? You've met friends like this, right? And everything always seems just right, or they always give you the side they particularly want you to see. What a friend does, this is, read this book from, uh, this verse from Hebrews. Encourage one another daily, talking about these Christian people, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What's the tricky thing about sin? It's tricky. And in fact, your own biggest flaws, I would go that far, most people's biggest flaws they're, un, they're not even aware of. And if you have these deficiencies and these sins that have affected you, a lot of times I don't think you even know it. How many times, I've, we've said this before, how many of you could just make assessments from the people you hang out with in about four seconds? Even the pastors around in the area, someone said, well, what could that pastor do to improve? I would have a list of, I'm not saying long lists or anything, but I'd say like these three things would be my gut take on what could help them in their ministry. I'm sure they have the same list for me, right? And maybe if you've got a good friend, you could say, can you help me? Can you actually open up enough to say, can you help me identify my flaws that I can confess these to the Lord and actually get somewhere instead of always putting this veneer on that everything is okay? Last thing that we're talking about uh, is sympathy. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. Last thing we're talking about is sympathy, and I don't mean sympathy like you have to feel um, empathy for something or these emotions like this. I actually mean, I was trying to trick you. Um, sympathetic. Um, symbol, what's a symbol? This is like the Greek basis of it. But a symbol is the same thing, right? So same and pathos, does anyone know? Pathological uh, has, same, it's, has the idea of passion and this deep passion, so the same passions. If you're looking for friends, you need to be having the same passions. And C.S. Lewis, he's kind of a philosopher guy. He went to, I think, Oxford. Wrote a lot of cool books, some kids' books, but he's essentially a philosopher and teacher and instructor. But one of, he said, the essence of friendship is that exclamation point of saying, you too? And when you're talking about finding good friends, you just start talking to people, and they share something that actually means something to them. That's a big deal to them. And you say, you know what? I read the same books. Or you talk to someone who, and, you're, and they go through the same passions and these things have to align up. What happens if you don't have the same passions? There's no basis of friendship. And here's the irony. If people are so desperate, they just want friends and you start talking about something that means something to you, maybe you've noticed it and they're like, you know what? I really don't care about that. Well, there's no basis for friendship. They just want friends so badly. Ironically, the only way to get good friends is to have some kind of connection on something that you're passionate about. So if you're saying, how do I find good friends? You can work on transparency. You can work on being consistent. But this is something you discover. When you, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you just met 
they're sharing something important, and you're like, me too. That's probably a moment. That is a, a friendship that might be able, with some transparency, with some consistency, could actually blossom into something that would be a deep, real friendship. So how do you, how do you get to a point, though, where you're actually a decent friend like Jonathan, a guy who is, just think about this, he gave up his crown, he gave up um, a perfect relationship with his father, so now there's friction from then on, and he's got to sit on this teetering balance that his dad wants him to hate David, he still likes David, and David never says this, he's still trying to honor his dad, so he's stuck in this middle. And in fact, he follows his dad all the way into battle, and his dad is, uh, he's king with a capital crazy, I'll put it that way. Politically, he makes bad moves. He wants to kill his most loyal officers. He gets this idea that I want to fight the Philistines. And Mount Gilboa, totally outnumbered, bad idea, goes to fight him. And the result is that he ends up killing himself because he's going to die. And he's got three boys. His three boys die. This is why it's the last time David and Jonathan saw each other. He goes with his father. So he had two options, Jonathan did. He could have gone with David and ran away and been safe. He could have said, Dad, I'm cool. I'm ready to be the next in command and probably have been safe. But instead, he tries to ride this balance and eventually dies. How do you become a friend like that? How do you become a friend that thinks so, uh, is able to step back and say, I want the best thing for you rather than me? Well, we've got something that he never had, and that's Jesus. Right? What a friend we have in Jesus, we just sang. And Jesus explains to his disciples just before he died, he said, there's greater love than this than there is, greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. And talk about transparent. Jesus didn't just open like his heart, but he opens his hands and lets them be nailed to a cross. And talk about consistent. When his disciples want to run away and they're like, we are so done with this. And his disciples fall asleep. And God says, listen, you can either uh, lose your friends or suffer hell. He says, I'll take hell. And what this does for you, and this is why this is important, is Jesus' transparency allows you to be transparent. And this is key. Because you do not go to heaven by your own works. You go to heaven by what Christ has done. You don't have to lie and say, I'm the perfect person. You can recognize your own flaws. And when your friend says, That's, there's an issue with that, you can recognize, you know, you are right. Because in Christ, you have value. In Christ, you can say, here's who I am only because of Christ. And you can be totally transparent. And he also can be consistent. Think about the consistency that Christ has. You don't have to worry about, okay, um, I put this much effort in, I've got to wait till they put that much effort in, then I put this much effort in. You are never going to be at a deficit because Christ has absolutely filled you up. And no matter how much you give and give and give and give and give and give and give to a relationship, you're never at a deficit because Christ has completely filled you up. Christ has set you free, and Christ has made you the ultimate person he wants you to be. So you have these things. You can be transparent. You can be consistent. What, are the, what do you do, though, if you're looking for friends? Just think about this. At the end of their life, this is a quote from David. This is the last thing we're going to look at. So Jonathan and David, um, just before this, they're weeping and hugging each other. And Jonathan said to David, uh, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. Saying, The Lord be witness between you and between your descendants and my descendants forever. This is the last time they see each other. What if, what if that, that same passion, that passion that you share with your friend is the Lord? What if that's it? What if it's not like baseball or construction or something? What if it is the Lord? 
which means you both have this deep friendship with Christ. Christ has shown you who you are. Christ has forgiven you. That means your friendship never ends. It's just not a worldly thing. I've got to get what I can before this person moves off and takes a transfer. If you have a shared bond in Christ, not only does that bring you closer together, a shared passion, but that means your friendship will never end because Christ has said, you are my friends. Your sins are forgiven. And now you can make friends that last forever. Amen.